0: Hi, I'm JD Siri Ramos. I am the producer of a Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search a Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six, six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Truth is never- Hello, and welcome to a Public Affair. I'm your host for the hour, Jade Isiri Ramos, filling in for Carousel Baird. In the early 1900s, child savers, who were mostly white and wealthy, set out to, quote, protect the children of immigrants who were living in crowded homes and were facing disease, poverty, and violence. Their efforts were the seeds from which the family court, as we knew it, grew. In her recently published book, today's guest lays out the history of that court and concludes that reform is not enough. Jane Spinnick is a, former, is a former juvenile rights attorney and the author of The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to families, to Children and Families. Jane is the Edward Ross Arano Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School, and there she directed the clinical programs in family regulation for 40 years. Jane, thank you so much for join, uh, joining us today.
1: Thank you, Jade. I'm glad to be here.
0: Now, I have your whole I have a bio here for you, but I just want as we get started to have you set us up in like what was your career within um, family courts and what is how, how are you situated in this story?
1: Well, I began as a lawyer for children in 1980 in the family court in New York City. And after a few years, I came to Columbia to start a clinical program where my students represented children in child welfare proceedings. Um, And later they represented uh, older youth and parents in similar kinds of proceedings. I took a leave from Columbia in the mid-1990s and ran the Juvenile Rights Division of the Legal Aid Society here in New York. And at the time, we represented almost 40,000 children in foster care um, in New York City. Uh, that's a lot of children. One thing that's good is it's a lot of children. Um, it was really the peak time and fortunately, many fewer children, many, many fewer children, under ten thousand children are now in foster care mm. in New York City. So that is that is an achievement. So it went from forty thousand.
0: so it went to forty thousand at sort of the peak of your career to ten thousand. Yes, now. it
1: went to forty thousand because there was um the child welfare system, what I would like instead to refer to as the family regulation or the family policing system um, really was at its height then because it was a combination of the aids crisis and the war on drugs which often meant a war on poor women Um, so many of their children were in care And also, it was a time when it was a high point of arresting juveniles uh, for committing crimes. And that's another thing that is good, which is those numbers have come uh, drastically down. And um, the public doesn't always realize, listening uh, to some of the radio and TV, that uh, those those numbers are really at all time lows since the highs in the in the late 90s. So there isn't a crime wave of young people right now. So that is some good news.
0: All right, I interrupted you. So you were at a time where there were 40,000 um, kids in New York that that you were representing A, a amount of those.
1: Right. So that's what the lawyers for children were doing at the time. Um, Then I came back to Columbia and I started uh, what it was an adolescent representation clinic. And that was really to represent young people, 16 to 24, who were aging out of foster care and had no permanent home. Mm -hmm. Many of them had no Legal parent because their parental rights had been terminated, but they hadn't been adopted, so they were what we now call legal orphans. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there are about twenty thousand um, young people aging out of foster care across the country every year.
0: Yeah, and um, we don't we don't stop being parents when we turn eighteen.
1: No, we don't. Indeed. And the longer I've been a parent, the more I understand that.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Um, I appreciate you getting us situated in who you are and, and um, why you are so situated in this space. Um, can you, before we get started, I want to get my vocabulary right. So um, you sort of use in the book family court often. You also use juvenile court. What are we talking about when we're talking about these um, juvenile court or family court? Sure.
1: Sure. So let me start at the beginning because yeah. I think that helps. Um, the original juvenile court was okay. started in 1899 and the idea behind it uh, was twofold. Um, it was for young people who got in trouble not to be taken to criminal court but to be taken to juvenile court And the idea what what I call in the book that, The great idea (laughs) was that having a social court, a court that didn't look like a regular court with lawyers and evidence and um, proper procedures, but a social court would be able to stop those young people from uh, lives of crime, Mm -hmm. from recidivism. And that would happen with a benevolent judge, maybe a probation officer, maybe a social worker, who would try to figure out what was going on with this young person and fix them. Um, The second reason for the court was that the reformers at the time were really worried about the influx of immigration into the major cities of the east and the midwest and these immigrants were very different than the white settlers who had come before they were different in their dress in their language in their customs and the idea was to make them into quote proper americans and so the judge's job became to fix these families and all, as well as fixing the young people so so I do want to say that we do want to continue to treat children differently than adults um, right. when they get in trouble but we don't need a separate court for that and we certainly don't need a court um, that pretends to be able to fix families because over a hundred and almost 25 years the court has not been able to do that
0: all right jane i know your your book spoils the punchline but we're not ready to abolish them yet we're just learning what they are (laughs) (laughs) um all right so jane you are talking about this uh benevolent judge right and i I was sort of imagining this um in the room it's like there's still a huge power dynamic right you saw this a young child a, a teenager younger in some cases sitting in front of a man who has a lot of power and status, I I guess, I mean, it's 1890. So I'm assuming it's eight.
1: Most of the early judges were men. Yeah. No, most of the early reformers were actually women women who, who tried to set up this court. Um, it was scary. Yeah. And, um, it was, I, I think it's important for your listeners to understand who, who was brought in and why. So children who broke the law, what we now call delinquency, came to this court. Also children who got into trouble but weren't breaking the law they were part of delinquency and really until the 1970s in this country and these are young people who run away uh don't go to school don't listen to their parents we now call these status offenses mm-hmm. but they were all part of delinquency when the court started and i i'll be happy to talk more about status offenses at some point if you'd like because most people don't even know this category exists. And then the last area was called, at the beginning of the court, dependency. And that's really now what we call neglect and abuse. So these were the three areas that the state intervened in family life and brought children to court. Over over the 20th century, the jurisdiction of the court expanded. And in many places, it is now called a family court. And in other places, sometimes it's still called a juvenile court or a domestic relations court or a children's court. But all of these courts grew out of that original juvenile court. And most of them have most of the jurisdiction over families um, and that are not in any kind of legal court um, because I... I think this court is is not a legal court.
0: Mm. Yeah, um, that's a good it's good to point out that that is um, we're talking about not like custody, not those sort of cases. Right. We're talking about um, neglect cases or we're talking about children (laughs) misbehaving and getting and getting sent to court.
1: Right. So There is a lot of jurisdiction over custody, visitation, support. Um, There are several good books written about that, but this book is really about when the state itself brings a child or a family to court for some reason.
0: Yeah, um, so, we have let's let's say let's like walk through an early day of the case you know a child's brought in a teenager's brought in for delinquent delinquency um, what are the options for that judge to to offer that child
1: well that has evolved over the course of the century as well yeah um, when when a child was first brought into the court for delinquency um, The judge had the power to decide, does this child go home? Do do I detain them? They weren't called jails. They were called detention halls. Do I send them away, not to prison, but to reform school? Though those names um, hide a lot because um, they were punishments. And even though the court often said it was for the child's own good, these were punishments by other names. Um, over the course of the first half of the 20th century, there was almost no due process rights at all in the court, not for children and not for adults. And it wasn't really until the Supreme Court in 1967, in a case called Inray um decided that children had a right to counsel And I'll just tell you a little bit about the case because it really is quite stark. Gerald Galt uh, was a young person. um, I can't remember quite now. I think he was 14. um, And he made a lewd phone call. And he was arrested, taken to juvenile court. He had no lawyer, no notice of what, Um, he supposedly did wrong, um, no right to counsel, no evidence submitted. And the judge sent him to the industrial school, think juvenile prison, for six years. Hmm. Now, if Gerald had been an adult, he would have both had some due process rights, but also the most serious um, consequence would have either been a fine or 30 days in jail. So you can see the stark difference between the two.
0: yeah, one and month versus one month versus six years
1: six years, right. So fortunately, there was a lawyer in uh, Arizona named Amalia Lewis who was connected to the ACLU. And she got the ACLU to take the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. And Justice Fortas, who was um, really the justice who I think, let's say before Justice Kennedy, and I can talk about that later, but was was the justice who cared most about children's issues. And Justice Fortas essentially said, this is outrageous to be able to do this without counsel. And in Galt, he, he didn't say that a child should have all the same rights as an adult in in the juvenile court, but he did say that there had to be the right to counsel and the right to present evidence and the right to know what you're being charged with. Um, that, he said, was fundamental fairness. So. So this was a huge change in the court. And one of the family court judges at the time said it was like dropping a nuclear bomb on the court because it really was going to or was supposed to limit the power that the judge had.
0: Yeah. But this happened nearly 70 years after the creation of the court.
1: Right. And all these years later, what we find is in some jurisdictions, children get the lawyers, young people get the lawyers they're supposed to have. They get a hearing. But in many jurisdictions, they really don't. Um, During the Obama administration, the Department of Justice studied several courts several states around the country to see if uh, the juvenile or the family court was providing due process. And unfortunately, they found that it wasn't, mm. that that it almost looked like it looked when Gerald Galt was was just railroaded through that court. Um, there weren't enough lawyers. The, the judges often asked young people to waive their right to a lawyer before even knowing what was going on. And so while it is, yes, it's better because in many places you have a lawyer, but even then we don't fund the juvenile uh, defense bar sufficiently to do all the work. Um, And so it's still not still not where it should be in terms of due process for young people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just want to remind the listeners that you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT. Our guest today is Jane Spinnick. She is the author of The End of Family Court. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001. Jane, um, going back to these early courts, you mentioned that they we're specifically focused on um, immigrant children and, you know, other white children of the area, but really black and indigenous and um, Latinx at the time um, children were were not included. Um, that certainly has changed to where we are now.
1: Yes, it has. Um- Well, part of the reason was because of where the courts were started. Mm. There were not juvenile or family courts in the South for several decades um, uh, into the 20th century. Um, Unfortunately... Um, As the courts moved across the country and as they moved south, but also in the northern cities, Chicago was where the first court was. New York had a a children's court not long after. Um, Black children, even then, were disproportionately brought into the court. And What surprised me the most in doing this research, are the number of reports, both by judges and by kind of good government groups early in the century, in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, saying, um, we are bringing more Black children into this court than they are a part of the population, mm-hmm. what we now call disproportionality? And the reasons they gave, then, are the same reasons we have now for children of color disproportionately being brought to the court. Racism, segregation, the lack of the same level of services in segregated communities, the lack of basic income for so many people. So, This court was and remains a court that is predominantly, overwhelmingly for poor people, and then predominantly, disproportionately for um, children of color, especially for Black and um, Native American children, who, of course, were not part of the court system at the beginning of the century because the federal government was doing the dirty work mm-hmm. at the time, separating uh, Native American children from their parents and tribes. And there's been a lot of um, publicity now about those children being put in these boarding schools to turn them into, quote, proper Americans. So, so Native American children were not part of the court until later in the 20th century. And then once they were, of course, they again were disproportionately part of um, the court. And in, in many jurisdictions, um, Hispanic, Latinx children are disproportionately in the court as well yeah you
0: there's like this funny change that seems to happen and and maybe you can shine a light on it better for me um that goes from we are trying to protect these children and their futures and and give them a path forward to be successful citizens and then but But then there's like a switch to let's protect public safety. Let's prevent these kids from having the opportunity to create, to do bigger crimes. Not necessarily for, it it doesn't seem necessarily for their benefit, but for the benefit of like society.
1: Well, what's ironic is that even though there was different language used at the beginning of the court, children were being punished during that period of time. It's not like they were um, getting the kind of benevolent fixes that the court was supposed to be giving. So in hmm. some ways, as the court went on, it just the, it was a little more honest what what was really happening. Um, I think it's also important in the area of, what's called neglect and abuse that that during the second half of the 20th century that jurisdiction grew tremendously um, and and that was really for several reasons um, perhaps the one that's that's most important is that in the 1960s there was a pediatrician named henry kemp who um, noticed that a very small number of children were being severely abused by their parents. And he called that battered children's syndrome or battered child syndrome. And after he published that report, there was a lot of publicity about it. But I think it's important to understand that Dr. Kemp said pediatricians should be looking out for a very small number of these cases Mm. he didn't think that this was going to be turned into what we now have today this vast system of mandated reporting he was very focused on this kind of extreme abuse and yet um you know in soon after he his report came out and the both states and the federal government changed laws. In 1967, there were about 10,000 reports around the country. And in 2019, there were about 4.4 million reports on about 8 million children. I think it's important for your listeners to understand that 75 to 80% of these cases are not about physical abuse, sexual abuse, serious neglect, like starvation. They are about poverty Mm -hmm. and its related problems, whether that's the lack of access to um, substance use treatment, the lack of mental health treatment, the same things I talked about earlier, you know, living in segregated communities that are surveilled by law enforcement in, in maximum kinds of ways. And so, in fact, you most of those families that are disrupted but not ultimately taken to family court, um, you know, it's a very destructive system because what it does is it makes families, makes parents afraid of reaching mm-hmm. out for help because almost everybody they would ask for help from the school teacher to the guidance counselor to the pediatrician all are what are called mandated reporters who believe if somebody needs help their job is to pick up the phone and call child protective services unfortunately
0: yeah i feel like not even not even it's their job but they're legally required to
1: well, they are legally required, but they don't understand very well that legal requirement. If they see something other than, again, very, very serious kinds of maltreatment, but if they see a child who is dirty, is hungry, seems to, that something's kind of wrong, the, their first job is not to just pick up the phone and call it in. Mm-hmm they don't realize that most families reported never get services whether they're taken to court or not they never get services but also they don't um they don't realize that they can take steps before you call it in they can reach out and find out what's going on what does this family need is there a food pantry is there is Can we get this housing problem fixed? Can, can the landlord fix the mold in the bathroom that's harming this child who now has asthma? I mean, there are many things to do um, before you pick up the phone. And, and one of it, I'll tell you this story too. In 1990, there was a A government, a federal government advisory board on neglect and abuse. So, not a bunch of radicals, right? This is a government advisory board who said this system is a disaster because what's happened is everyone reports children instead of supporting them. We want to turn, you know, we want to dismantle this reporting system and And figure out how do we support families so that their children can flourish, not report them, so they end up going into a system that ultimately helps very few of them,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, Jane, I just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to a public affair. Our guest today is Jane Spinnick. She is um a law professor of. a professor of law emerita at Columbia Law School, and she is the author of the recent book, The End of Family Court. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001. Jane, you're, you're highlighting this theme that is prevalent throughout the whole timeline of the court, right, which is that most of the problems that are facing families, are facing children are a lack of resources, a lack of support, a lack of like literal food, money, attention, um, childcare, and that instead of those things being addressed, um, kids are taken away. They're sent to schools. They're sent to foster families. They're sent anywhere, <laughs> anywhere that, that can help them, um, but without addressing the fact of what could we do to give the families um, the support. One of the most I think this is maybe jumping a little bit into future, but we're, we're jumping all around in time. But um, one sure. of the most striking parts to me of your book was um, your own experience when you were newly in um, this line of work and you were seeing that families were coming in for abuse and ne- neglect cases and their children were almost immediately taken before they were even found to have done anything to their children. Um, Can you help our listeners understand um, that aspect of the court?
1: Sure. Um, When I was a young lawyer um, and was beginning to represent children, both in delinquency matters, but also in child welfare matters, um, there was almost no discussion about how can we support this family so this child doesn't have to go into foster care. And in the book, I say, you know, I'm really ashamed of my own practice of not realizing that I was helping to consign my clients to a future, not with their, not necessarily with their family. And it really you know, I think many of us who have worked in the system for a long time have had to reckon with the mistakes we've made, but also to think about what does that mean for the future and how how do I think differently now? And when I started to write this book, I still believed that the family court could be reformed. I had worked on a lot of reform efforts, particularly in the second half of my career, and I thought that the court could be made into a better version of itself and a more due process version of itself. And jumping into the rabbit hole of the history of the court, I realized that that was not true that there had been attempts to reform the court throughout the 20th century, and that those reforms, even with the addition of some due process, did not improve what happened to children or to families. And so that was, that led me to think about, well, what are the alternatives? And Fortunately, in the last decade, there has been a lot of discussion in the carceral system about abolition. Mm -hmm. And so I really keyed into that discussion to see, well, what would abolition mean for the family court? Because for me, abolition is a mindset. It is a way to approach um, a, a very intractable problem with new eyes, with new ideas. And the second thing that happened was that um, impacted youth and adults and parents mostly began to speak out about the harm that these systems were causing them. Earlier in the century, most of the reform recommendations came from professionals, whether they were lawyers or social workers or academics studying the system. But the the voices of impacted youth and parents really changed how so many of us who are in those, quote, professional roles thought about Um, what needed to be done. And in fact, I think today my role is to be an ally to those impacted people and their communities. Not to be the leader, but to be someone who helps to to change what has happened to them in their lives Um, and to be led by their ideas which I think um, is a real change. It's a real change for many professionals who are um, really listening hard to impacted families. Um, But it also opens up the possibility of thinking differently about what belongs in a court system and what doesn't belong in a court system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jane, you we are hearing music from the vinyl library jay can you go ask them to stop playing the piano (laughs) (laughs) um we if you're just tuning in you're listening uh to jane spinnick on a public affair we're talking about her new book the end of family court um jane you had this another thing that you said in your book that I i thought was really impactful and changed the way that i sort of thought about my own relationship to this um is that you know you haven't met a child or you haven't experienced a child who has been in foster care who hasn't been somewhat traumatized by being removed from a family which is sort of like yeah no duh (laughs) like obviously (laughs) right um but you know i i'm now approaching my 30th birthday and i'm married and i have a house and you know for different biology reasons like my spouse and I can't necessarily have a biological child without a lot of effort and so you know I thought about like how can I how can I parent if I want to parent um, and fostering has always felt like oh this is a way that you can help a child who's who you know doesn't have parents or needs support right now um, and you're you're and I've challenged that idea before right I'm not this isn't my first time thinking about um, right. the system but Your idea also challenged me to understand that participating in the system means that there's it it means that some child can be taken from their family and put in my home.
1: Right. So so that this is a difficult thing for for many people who think that that it is a good idea um, for children to be removed from their parents. I'm not saying you think that, right. but the end result is that for most children, of course, there are some children whose parents, for whatever reason, are unable to care for their child. And there isn't a relative, there isn't someone in the community who can step in. There will always be some small number. Um, but not the gigantic number that exists today. I think it is a change of mindset for someone who wants to foster a child to see it as an aid to a family to help the family be able to be reunited, Mm -hmm. that it's not a long-term plan that leads to adoption, that, Adoption, again, is a separate issue. There are there are many different kinds of adoptions. And of course, the more adoptees talk about their experiences, the more we understand that closed adoptions, adoptions where where a young person doesn't understand where they came from, Mm -hmm. has no connection to that community or to those relatives is harmful, it's traumatic. So it's a very different kind of thinking if if you choose to foster a child or to adopt a child um, to really recognize what is your role and when is your role first to help this child return to a family and which many, there are some foster parents who have always understood that, but there are many other foster parents who don't, who think, okay, I'm saving this child from some terrible family. Very few families are terrible. They may need a lot. They, They may have not gotten what they need in order to take care of their children in the way they want to take care of them. But that doesn't make them a bad parent and that doesn't mean their child should not be able to live with them so it's a it it's a real change of mindset for someone who is thinking how can i be helpful
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I definitely i think as social media has changed the landscape we live in i've definitely heard um much or <laughs> maybe a lot of um People who are fostering in what I guess they would say is the right way, saying, you know, there is an emphasis needs to be put on reunification, not on foster to adopt, even though some children will not return to their families. And that's right. a reality that we that we live with. Um, right. We're at we've got about 15 minutes left. So this is sort of the last chance if you're uh, listening and you want to join in. Our guest today is Jane Spinnick, and she is the author of the new book the end of family court, how abolishing the court brings justice to children and families. Jane, this is sort of a a left turn from where we're at, but we mentioned that we were going to talk about status offenses, um, which I think is, we got to talk about it. Um, So what is a status offense and um, how is it different than being in a a regular court of law?
1: Right. So a status offense is when a young person does something, misbehaves, but does not break the law. Mm-hmm. And as I said, in the beginning of the, cent- of the 20th century, there was that was considered delinquency. Now we call them status offenses. Some states call them pins, gins, juveniles in need of supervision, people in need of supervision, right? Chins, children in need of supervision. These are young people whose status is that they're a minor. If they were an adult, they couldn't be brought to court for misbehaving. Mm -hmm. So what kind of misbehaving? Maybe they've run away. Maybe they don't go to school. Maybe they're having underage sex. Maybe they're drinking or drugging. These are not crimes. And yet some young people are brought to court because of it. So who are the young people? Not surprisingly, it's not me, mm-hmm. right? I did some of those things when I was a young person, but I wasn't arrested. And that's because the young people who are mostly arrested are the ones who are most surveilled by schools and by by law enforcement. So... Um, you know yeah it the school to prison pipeline often goes through status offense mm. jurisdiction where a young person is having a hard time in school and suddenly they're brought to court to fix them well, we know our schools are not all doing what they're supposed to. And that many of the young people who end up in the status offense system or the delinquency system have, you know, need support in school or their school has to be a better school to be able to provide them with what they need. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that this kind of jurisdiction still exists is pretty outrageous especially because nobody likes these cases i've never spoken to a judge who wants one of these cases and in fact in the last since since the beginning of the 21st century the numbers of young people brought to court for status offenses has really dropped mm-hmm. like from 200,000 to just under 100,000 across the country. so And most of the reason is that lots of jurisdictions have created diversion programs, so they don't come to court at all. OK, we if we've gotten it down that low, why can't we just stop it, right? Because going through court doesn't help. What helps is having readily available services in the community that these young people can use. Um, and so, one of my first recommendations in abolition is to say no more status offenses. We should not bring anybody to court for when they haven't broken the law, any yeah. young person. Yeah,
0: I think w- what you're saying makes so much sense. And you ask this question, you hypothetically asked this question why, you know, we, we cut it in half, why can't we just go the rest of the way? And I think it has to do with the way that we like think about people who are the quote problem right like let's just get them out of our out of our lives like let's send them away right. you know they're not in our school anymore because we sent them to court now they're in a juvenile program and we don't have to deal with them and and right. we're not thinking holistically of how you know even people who are quote the problem if given the right resources and given the support that they need it can be productive members, not even productive, but just important parts of our, our society.
1: Absolutely. And we also have to acknowledge that people who have money buy mm-hmm. these services right. for right. for their child, right? right? They're able to get a young person the treatment that they may need. They're able to afford recreational activities. They're able to do Um, a lot of things that keep their, their child out of the eyesight of surveillance. Also, status offenses happen to be a kind of jurisdiction where parents can come to the court and say, I can't handle my child. Well, people with means do not go to court and say, I can't handle my child. The people who find themselves there are desperate
0: yeah, last resort. because
1: they can't find the help in the community. Well, let's take the money we use to put them through this system or to remove them from their families and put it into the community so that a parent isn't left with this terrible dilemma of taking their child to court because they don't know what else to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. It- Jane I have we could talk for another I could tack another hour onto the show I would um, to just talk about the the financial aspect of how this this court is it's it's it makes money right people are making money Um, but I want to give us space to talk about um, our your the what you posited in the book of the way to abolish court family court so um, you mentioned get away with status offenses what else would need to be done
1: well think of them as non-reformist reforms that is reforms that help to dismantle the system not to strengthen it because all the attempts we've made to strengthen the system have not really worked um so it's thinking differently about how do we assist families about 15 billion dollars was spent in in 2019 on out-of-home care Mm. for children, many of whom never needed to be taken away from their families. If you take that money and put it into the community, those families are gonna be able to take care of their children. You know, we're experiencing right now that the checks from the federal government have stopped and what happened immediately the number of children living in poverty shot right back up Mm -hmm. to to pre-pandemic levels. During the pandemic, when parents were getting extra money and they weren't being evicted from their housing, guess what? There was less poverty and there was also less child maltreatment, which is what we've now discovered um from some of the studies that were done about what happened to children during the course of the pandemic um, so this all it takes not is a,
0: what... a global pandemic to, to, to right. help everyone understand that like yeah a thousand dollars a month goes a long way to help parents be better parents
1: exactly but we're not giving the parents yeah. that support so so we need to take that money away from systems and put it back into communities. Mm-hmm. We also have to rethink, you know, there are very specific things that I know we won't have enough time to talk about, but stopping mandated reporting it doesn't mean somebody can't call, but it means that that a professional can call, but mm-hmm. first doesn't have to call can try to figure out how to help without calling. Um, so that people feel they can go to a trusted professional, whether it's a doctor or a social worker or a treatment provider, and not worry that the first thing they're gonna do is call, a, call the hotline. It means thinking differently about young people um, who do break the law. So the international standard for Juvenile responsibility is 14 years of age. We sometimes arrest children who are six, seven, eight years old and take them to court. Now, what's the point of that? The, a, a young child maybe did something that you don't want the young child to do, but they don't understand the court system. They don't understand. Um, you know, what, how to go through this system. And that's why you need to raise the age for when we think a child can be criminally responsible. And instead, figure out how to help this child and the family outside of the court system, so the child doesn't get into more trouble. Mm -hmm. So those are, you know, examples of change. The, the last one I want to say is as we shrink the court, as we, as we take things out of the court system or shrink the jurisdiction the court has, um, for example, by tightening the definitions of abuse and neglect, we have to build up due process for the much smaller number of people who are still going to find themselves in a court. I would like it not to be family court. I would like it to be a part of criminal court and a part of um, civil court and not a court that thinks it's doing good. But when you shrink it down, you still have to have due process for whatever proceedings are left. Parents and children have a right to lawyers. Mm -hmm. They, They need to know what's happening to them and they need... You know, professional lawyers to help them, either, you know, not get into the system at all, or if they're in the system, make the system prove there that that they in fact have either broken the law or mistreated their children, um, because the I know from being part of holistic representation in New York that. Family defense lawyers representing parents have kept children out of foster care because they've made the state prove that this parent has actually harmed a child. And guess what? Often they cannot prove that Mm -hmm. because that child has not been harmed.
0: Yeah, um, Jane. I think that that's. I've got to leave it about there. Um, I want to give you just a, a last. You have a minute or so. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you think is really important for our listeners um, to know?
1: I think it's important to know that the, how much this court and the systems that feed into this court undermine. So many communities. I mean, we learn about that a lot when we talk about arrest rates and we talk about incarceration um, devastating many communities, especially communities of color. And, and impoverished communities. Well, this system is another way that undermines those communities. And so getting out of this business means that those communities can develop ways to not just to heal, but to become important parts of our democracy and not be so denuded that they don't have the opportunity to to be fully a part of our political and economic system. So it's not just, you know, the particular family or the particular child who might be affected. It's entire communities that are undermined through this system.
0: Absolutely. That is Jane Spinnick. She is the author of The End of Family Court, How Ballishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. Uh, Jane, thank you so much for spending the hour with me.
1: Thank you, Jade. I really enjoyed it.
0: A big shout out to Jay, who engineered the show, Mary Jo, who was our receptionist today, and Shally Pittman, who is the news director at WORT. You're listening to a public affair on WORT eighty nine point nine FM, Madison. Up next is letters and politics. <laughs>